Hi friends, welcome to the FBC Zealand Teaching Podcast. We are a local church in Zealand, Michigan, and we desire to know Christ and to make Him known. We invite you into the same journey with us now as we open the scriptures and as we ask God to teach us and reveal Himself to us in His Word. Thanks for stopping by. This morning, we are beginning a new brief three-week series, and it is going to be on Matthew's gospel. Matthew chapter 1 is where we're going to be headed. Um, Before we get there, though, um, one thing uh, for the guests in our room especially, uh, you may hear some alarms go off in about three minutes here. Don't be alarmed. It is just our 10 o'clock reminder to pray. All right. A couple weeks ago, I said, hey, would you, church family, would you set your alarm every day for 10 a.m.? And every day at 10 a.m., my alarm goes off. Some other alarms go off in our house. And I know from being here a couple weeks that other alarms go off as well. I, I heard a chicken, I think it was last week, and it was phenomenal. It was like, I was, it brought such joy to my face in my heart. Um, but that's just a reminder to pray, a reminder to pray for our community, a reminder to pray for leadership within our church, a reminder to pray for people working in healthcare fields, a reminder to pray for people who are experiencing great struggle during this holiday season, the loss of a loved one, the, the, um, the disruption of everything going on in life, life. Um, be prayerful. 10 a.m. every day. I, I love it because I get text messages too saying, hey, we're praying for this for our church. We're praying for this for you. Continue to do that. As God brings people to your mind, reach out, pray for them. Um, but yeah, so we're going to be in Matthew's gospel. If you don't have a Bible, we'd love to give you a Bible. Uh, there's Bibles at the back. In just a minute, you can get up and get one. Um, But here's where we're going to be. Um, Matthew's gospel is incredibly unique. Actually, there's four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and they're all incredibly unique. If you were to start a story, how would you begin it, right? These gospels tell the story of Jesus. Uh, One of the passages we looked at earlier this year was the disciples on the road to a place called Emmaus, and Jesus meets them after he had been resurrected. And he says, what are you talking about? And they talk about the scriptures. And he says, don't you know, these are the scriptures that testify concerning me. All of scripture tells the story of God's redemption through his son, Jesus, from Genesis to Revelation, different parts at different times. But the amazing thing is, is when you open the New Testament and you open these first few verses of Matthew's gospel, one of the things you're going, wait, Abraham and Isaac, you get all these names. And at the beginning of the gospel of Matthew, you, if you don't know your Old Testament, you're a little bit lost for the first 17 verses or so. Now, Matthew's unique, right? Matthew includes this great genealogy. 17 verses or so telling you this person was the father of, was the father of, was the father of, was the father of. Now, if you go to Mark's gospel, Mark's going to say, he's going to give a a prophetic utterance from the Hebrew scriptures, from the Old Testament. He's going to say, here's the prophecy about the Messiah. And by verse three, I think it is, he's going to be talking about, now there's a man named John the Baptist, right? So Mark's story is unique to Mark. You come to Luke, and Luke is like one of the big Christmas passages. It's the one where we look at Mary and we look at um, Zachariah and Elizabeth. There's my reminder to pray. Um, you come to Zachariah and Elizabeth. You come to, um, you come to learning about the shepherds keeping watch over their flocks by night. And that's a whole story in and of itself. We looked at that a little bit last year. Um, you come to John. John starts off his gospel and he says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning, and through him all things were made. So he begins like, all right, let's take the story of Jesus, and let's go way back here and talk about how he was the Word, and he has been eternally existing for all of time, which is a repetition there. But he's eternally existed for all of time. He comes to verse 14, I think it is in John's gospel, and it says this, And the word became flesh, and he made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only, full of grace and truth. So each of these gospels give a different picture on the story of Jesus. Now, now they're not in contradiction to each other. It's like if you were to take a picture from here 
of out there, and you take a picture from out over there, out there, and you take a picture from over here, and you go out there, you get a different frame every time you snap that photo from a different spot. Every gospel writer is telling his account, inspired by the Holy Spirit, because all scriptures God breathed, scripture tells us in 2 Timothy. It's God-breathed, that it's useful, but, but he's giving, God is using not just, he's not dictating to these authors, he's using their experiences with Jesus in his story to tell the story to a people, to a time specifically. And Matthew's gospel is a gospel that is written primarily to a Jewish audience. And so one of the things that they care about in the Jewish world are genealogies. Now, how many of you could tell me, um, two generations back from you. So your parents and your grandparents. How many of you could do that? Okay, we got a couple. How about three generations back? You know your grandparents, great-great-parents? Okay, how about four, five, six, seven, eight, nine? Okay, well, I'll stop. Uh, <laughs> Matthew's gospel begins with Abraham. It begins with Abraham. We'll talk about why in a few minutes. He comes all the way to David. We'll talk about why in a few minutes. He comes from David. He comes all the way to the Babylonian exile. He picks up there in the rebuilding of the temple, and you've got 14, 14, 14 generations that Matthew records for us. Now, we could read this this morning. We could. And one of the things I love doing, especially in teaching like uh, uh, Sunday school classes and adult, adult classes and, uh, about the Bible, is when we read it out loud, whoever kind of, like, you come to the part where there's a whole bunch of names and everybody gets really quiet. <laughs> no one wants to mispronounce a name. It's okay to mispronounce names. It happens all the time. We could read this this morning. We could read this publicly, but we're not going to. Instead, I think it's better for us to go ahead and just sing these names. Can we do that? All right, let's try this. Here is, open your scriptures if you have them. Hang on a second. Let me see if I can get this working. Open your scriptures, please, to Matthew chapter 1. And let's see. There we go. Then Paris and Sarah came from Judah's woman Tamar. Paris 
so there's the story of the genealogies. And actually, it's a whole lot easier to sing it than it is to try and remember it. If any of the kids ask me, hey, who comes after this? I just have to start singing the song because that's the only way I know who comes next. But if you were to start a story, where would you start it? Would you start it all the way back there with your great, 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 more greats, grandparents? Which stories would you include and why? Matthew Matthew tells the story of Jesus and he includes a whole bunch of names and he includes them for a reason. But before we get to some of those names, which we're going to look at this morning, I want to go ahead and talk about this. In Galatians chapter 4, Paul writes this, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman. When the fullness of time had come. See, when you start reading the genealogies, you begin to recognize that it's this generation and this generation and this generation of just waiting for the Messiah. Waiting for the promised one. Waiting for the deliverer. We, we sang it in the last song we sang together. And, and it said, for a hundred years, what fear we felt in this silent age, for a hundred years can he be found. It's referring to this time in between the, the close of the writings of Scripture where it's almost as if God was silent, but he wasn't. He was just waiting and still working and moving behind the scenes because they're waiting and hoping and longing for a deliverer. Now, some of the stories um, that I would tell of my family would be like, yeah, my grandpa did this, my grandma did this, my great-grandpa did this, and I can't get much beyond that. I can go way, way back into the history of our family, but you probably wouldn't care about some of those stories. But each one of those stories was something that God used in my life. Otherwise, I wouldn't be here. Each one of these people are someone whom God has used to bring about the Messiah in the fullness of time. What I love about this verse right here is it reminds me of two things. It reminds me that God will fulfill his promises in his time. Now, I struggle with that. I love it, but I struggle with it because sometimes I want God to fulfill those promises right now. God, why do we have to go through this illness? God, why do we have to wait to hear your voice and where you're calling us? God, why, does, why did I struggle with that or that or that as a kid? And I walked through it and I walked through it. As a parent, God, why do I, why do I see my kids and our kids struggle with various things or experience challenges when the fullness of time had come? There's a lot of things that God has promised us that he has fulfilled for us already. But there's some things where God just says, wait. And I have to be reminded that God will fulfill his promises and keep his promises, but he will do them in his time. The second thing I need to remember, though, is that God uses broken people in his plan. And if you knew even part of the story of the names on this page, you would go, yeah, they were messed up. And you would also go, yeah, God used them. He used them in a way that they couldn't have used themselves, right? Like He used them to be a part of bringing about the Messiah here on earth to dwell. What stories would you tell? What stories would you avoid if I asked you, tell me about yourself? Where would you begin? Now, I mentioned that Matthew's gospel is written to a primarily Jewish audience, possibly to a place called Syrian Antioch. It's just north of Israel on the coast, not too far. But there's a large Jewish population there. And Matthew is writing after the time of Jesus, right? He had to have the material to write it first. So he's writing probably before AD 70, but that's a guess, right? It's an educated guess. And one of the reasons is because the temple has not— the temple falls in Jerusalem under the Romans— in AD 70, and Matthew doesn't mention that. Big, big thing. Um, there's significant portions of Matthew that tie together all these prophecies about who Jesus or who the Messiah would be in the Hebrew Bible, in the Old Testament, and Matthew keys in on all of these. Like, like he, he just mentions people, mentions people, mentions people. You've already heard a couple of the prophecies having been fulfilled. We'll talk about those in just a moment. But Israel, during this time, they're looking for a Messiah. As they're waiting, 
as, as we sing in the great Christmas hymn, Israel's strength and consolation, hope of all the earth thou art. They're waiting for this hope, this comfort to come. God, to make things right and send his promise to Messiah, Redeemer. One writer puts it this way. He says, during the intertestamental period, that 400-year period, he says, messianic speculation flourished as Israel reflected on this prophetic hope of a restored Davidic kingship monarchy. He says, messianic hope was tied to Israel's longing for God's final judgment of the nations, and Israel's resulting freedom was from Gentile domination. And he goes on to say, in Matthew, this word Christos is a key title that portrays Jesus as the one who fulfills these promises. My point is this. He's taking all these promises and he's saying, you know that these are fulfilled in Jesus and here is how you know. Genealogies to the people of Israel communicated several things. They they communicated the rights that would be afforded that person. You had a right to property. You had a right to certain things because of who you were born from. You had rights to inheritance. Genealogies also did that. And they kept meticulous records of genealogies to know, yeah, you're part of that. Yeah, that's your inheritance, whether it's land or possessions or something else. They they conferred a sense of identity. Um, They conferred a sense of calling. You know, to, to be a priest in the Old Testament, you had to be of the tribe of Levi. You had to be of the tribe of Levi. In fact, you got in big trouble if you tried to carry the ark and you weren't the right person from the right tribe. And that's not to say one person is better than another. It's just that God made a distinction for the tribe of Levi to do this task. It's like he said that the, the scepter was going to come or the kingship was going to come out of Judah. That was, a, that was a promise that God made. So knowing your genealogy knew whether you could serve in the temple or which part of the temple you could serve in or what thing you were supposed to do. Genealogies communicated your calling and the authority you had as a person. Now, I've used the word a couple times, Christ. Uh, In Greek, it's the word Christos. Can you say Christos? All right. Um, Christos is this word on your right. Christos, that's in Greek. On your left, there's the word Messiah, but in Hebrew, it's Mashiach. Can you say that? Mashiach. Oh, that's such a fun word to say. Say it one more time. Mashiach. Yeah, so Mashiach and Christos. Now, these two words roughly mean the same thing, right? When you see Messiah, you can think Christ. When you see Christ, you can think Messiah because they mean the same thing. They're just in two different languages. They mean this, the fulfiller of Israelite expectation of a deliverer, the anointed one, the Messiah, the Christ. Now, this is an ancient picture here. This this tablet goes about a thousand years before the time of Jesus, and on it is a genealogy. This is how meticulous that they kept certain of these things. This isn't a Hebrew genealogy. I think it's Egyptian. I think it's Egyptian. Um, But that just shows you the, the people of the time, they cared about what order they went in, and they wanted to know all these things. It, it predates the time of Jesus, this matter of a genealogy. So Messiah, Christos, Matthew's gospel begins this way. The historical record of Jesus Christ, or Jesus the Messiah, you could translate it. The son of David, the son of Abraham. So we talked about Jesus Christ here, just so we know. Jesus the Messiah, Jesus the Christ, same thing. Son of David. Why would Matthew bother to say he's the son of David? David is a very important person within Jewish history. He is known as like the king of the Old Testament. Um, he was, uh, his name actually means beloved. If your name is David here, your name means beloved. Um, uh, it, it's, a, it's a name that describes this relationship that King David had with Yahweh. Uh, He was called a man after God's own heart, which is interesting because if you know much of David's story, you'll know that he was a man after God's own heart, and he also made a lot of bad decisions in his life. (laughs) We'll talk about some of them today. But God made him a promise in 2 Samuel chapter 7. And, And this is part of a covenant that God makes with David, not because David deserves it, but because God says, I'm going to do this through you. He says this in 2 Samuel. He says, the Lord declares to you, the Lord himself... So, so the onus or the responsibility for keeping this covenant is on God. The Lord himself will make a house for you. 
When your time comes and you rest with your fathers, I will raise up after you your descendant who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. Now, if you were to stop here, you'd be thinking, oh, he's talking about David's next son who's going, or David's next heir to the throne who's going to be part of his own flesh and blood. And in one sense, he is talking about that. God goes on, he says, he will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. But now you go, hang on a second. So he's going to build a house, which describes David's son, Solomon. But now he's going to establish a throne of the kingdom. Okay, I'm there. Until the word forever. Because you go, how is he going to establish something forever with someone who is mortal? God says, I will be a father to him. And he will be a son to me. When he does wrong, I will discipline him with a human rod and with blows from others. So he's still talking about David's earthly son, which... You know, there is some discipline that happens in his life. He says this in verse 15, But my faithful love will never leave him as I removed it from Saul. I removed him from your way, your house and your kingdom. So he's talking about all of which, like David's, David's, um, not destiny, David's, um, David will be known as a king for a long time. Put it that way. <laughs> oh, hate it when the right word I'm looking for escapes. Your house, he says, and kingdom will endure before me forever. It means that his reign or someone who is Davidic will be on the throne forever. And your throne will be established forever. This means that there's going to be a king that comes from David who will reign forever. Now, here we could insert uh, the amazing song by George Friedrich Handel, and he shall reign forever and ever, forever and ever and ever and ever. Hallelujah, 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 hallelujah. Anybody know what I'm talking about? One of the best holiday albums of all time. If you don't know Handel's Messiah, you are missing out and you should go listen to it. Um, it promises and comes to fruition that there's an established reign and kingdom forever. Now, there's another verse that ties into this. It's this one that Brian read actually at the beginning. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he would be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father. Prince of Peace. There's this promise of a child, one who would reign forever. And Isaiah is filled with all these prophecies. He says this, of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne. Going back to 2 Samuel, David is going to have a throne established forever. But this child is going to be one whom, I, whom Isaiah says he's going to reign on David's throne and over his kingdom. He's going to establish and uphold it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. And it says again, the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. This isn't left to human chance. This isn't left to, oh, if the human race gets their act together, I will go ahead and this will become a reality. No, it says that the zeal of the Lord of hosts, the God of armies will accomplish this is what he says. And this is a promise that God has given through, through 2 Samuel, to, to, to David in 2 Samuel. He's given through the prophet Isaiah, and there's a couple other promises that we could look at. But in the middle of this, I want you to just remember, life for David kept going on. All right? David's given this promise. He, he sees his son Solomon rise to kingship. Solomon rises to kingship. We see him in the genealogy. And then his son rises to kingship, and we go actually pretty quickly south from Solomon because there's a whole lot of decisions that people have made. Solomon and Rehoboam and Abijah and Asa and Jehoshaphat, all these people make decisions of, am I going to follow God? Not, is God going to keep his promise, but will I follow God and God's will and God's desire for me and for us as a nation? In the middle of all this, life went on for David, his son Solomon, the Jewish people. Eventually, we come to the exile. We see that in verse 11 of Matthew's gospel in chapter 1, that, that Josiah followed Jeconiah, or Jehoiakim, uh, and his brothers, and at the time of the exile, to Babylon they go. And they get taken into exile. But they get taken into exile with a promise that we find in Ezekiel 36. God says, I will bring you back, because he's a faithful covenant-keeping God. Now, Matthew's point is this. Jesus is the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant for the Jewish people. 
The Jewish people are looking for a deliverer. And one of the things they're going to check if they hear Messiah is, is he a part of David's lineage? And you can't miss it in this because you get 14 from 18, from Abraham to David, 14 generations. You get another section from David to the Babylonian exile, from the exile to the Messiah. And then just because he wants to make sure you know, it says in verse 17, so all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. From David until the end of the exile, or exile to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the exile of Babylon until the Messiah, 14 generations. 14, 14, 14. Now, Matthew then says this. He, he says in, um, in verse 1, so it's a historical record of the genealogies of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So he picks out David because he's got these promises to David. He wants to make sure we understand God is keeping his promise. But then we go to Abraham, and Abraham is like the figure right? In Jewish history, he is the father of the Jewish people. God comes to him in Genesis chapter 12, and he says this, the Lord said to Abraham, or Abram at this time, he hasn't had his name changed yet. He says, go out from your land, your relatives, and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. So, so from, from just these two verses, we know God is going to do something in Abram's life that Abram doesn't deserve, that is a gift of God's grace, but God is going to use Abram and make him into a great nation, which is ironic because he's got no kids. He's 75 years old, and he's childless. And he's going to go another 25 years childless through this, this struggle of what, God, are you doing? But then it says this in God's promise in Genesis 12. He says, I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who treat you with contempt. And all the peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. Now, when he says all peoples here, God is making a promise that's going to be through Abram that there's going to be blessing not just to his family, but to the people around him. Going forward, generation after generation after generation, even to today. God has promised, I will bless all people through you. And one of the ways that we see this promise is through the gift of a deliverer. A Messiah who is not just for the Jewish people, but also for the whole world. Matthew ties Jesus' lineage back to Abraham because Jesus is the fulfillment of the ultimate blessing for the world. All nations on earth are going to be blessed through Abraham. And this has that present but future um, ramification to it. Matthew's gospel is going to go on. If you sit through and read Matthew's gospel today, you're going to constantly be bombarded with the message that's being written to Jewish people saying, by the way, God loves the people also who are not Jewish. He, he loves the, the leper. He loves the outcast. He loves the person who's caught in sin over here. And he calls them because he's redeemed, or he's brought the re possibility of redemption to them through his death and his resurrection. It's not just for the Jewish people. It's actually for the entire world. It's why when um, John's gospel writes, for God so loved the world. It's not just God so loved the Jewish people, which he did love the Jewish people, and they have a distinct plan and purpose in his, in his um, wisdom and in his work. But it's why when it says God so loved the world, the cosmos, he's talking about everyone, including me and you, most of us whom here are not Jewish, right? Matthew's gospel frequently includes God's love for the Jewish people and the Gentiles. In fact, he's going to have this great command and great commission that come later in the book of Matthew, where in like Matthew 28, he's going to say, I want you to go into all the world and I want you to make disciples of all the nations, right? Not just of the Jewish people, not just of the Gentiles, but of all the nations. I want you to baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and I want you to teach them everything I have commanded you, because I'm going to be with you to the end of the age. From here, Matthew has these three blocks of 14 generations, and Matthew's just driving home this point of who Jesus is. Now, the Eastern peoples used genealogies to establish something. It's important to note, Matthew doesn't add anyone into this list who's not a part of the genealogy. But if you go back and you start reading various genealogies in the Scripture, you'll notice that he selects certain names— he doesn't include every person from the time of Abraham to the time of Jesus. He selects certain names 
to include in his genealogy. That doesn't make it any less authoritative. That doesn't make it wrong. In the Eastern mind, you didn't have to count every generation. You just know, oh yeah, it comes through him and, and through him, and, and it's all good. In doing so, Matthew's underlining a significant point, though, by including all these different names of all these different people. He's underlining that God uses people from different walks of life in his plan to bring redemption through his son, Jesus, the Messiah. Now, we're not going to go through each name, but in just a couple minutes here, I want to highlight the personal stories of a few of these people um, mentioned in the text. Some of them we know a whole bunch about, like Abraham. There's like a whole book that's kind of dedicated, the book of Genesis, to a lot of his story and his son and his son. Um, But there's a whole lot of people here we don't know, we know a lot about and we don't know a lot about. But no matter whether we know a ton about them or not, God is using them in his story and in his plan. I want to look at a couple of the names. Um, Five of them I've I've alluded to already are are men. There's a lot of men in this genealogy. In fact, genealogies usually went by the the father's side of the family. Um, It doesn't fully in this, and we'll talk about that shortly. But the men. Now, it's important to note some of these men followed Yahweh. In fact, a lot of them followed Yahweh. But some of them had really rough goes with Yahweh. Um, five of these men, though, are included, and they have specific Old Testament prophecies that speak to God bringing his deliverer, his Messiah, through them. They are Abraham. If you went to Genesis 22, verse 12, you'd find a prophecy there given to Abraham that he'd have a, a seed come through him for this purpose. Jacob, you go to Numbers twenty four seventeen, you find that God has promised that the line of Messiah is going to come through Jacob. And Judah, uh, or Judah, in Genesis 49.10, says that the scepter will not fall from Judah. So Judah's part of this like kingship Davidic thing that's also going on here, even though he predates David. David we already talked about in 2 Samuel 7. And then there's a guy by the name of Zerubbabel, which is a fun word to say. In, in Old Testament class in college, we, I always used to remember his name, our, our teacher taught us, uh, Zerubbabel built the temple because he was one of the rebuilders of the temple out of Rubbabel. So there's how you can, <laughs> there's how you can remember Zerubbabel built the temple out of He comes after the destruction of the temple and the exile. Um, All of these men had promises that God made to them, that that the line of the deliverer would come through them. And he includes their names because he wants his Jewish audience to know, by the way, you can trust that this really is the Messiah. This isn't a fake. This isn't a fraud. This isn't someone who just kind of sneaked in trying to get past. And one of the ways you can tell is because he fulfills five prophecies all in one genealogy, all right? You get bored with genealogy sometime, but when you know that, you go, wow, God is a promise keeper. If God has said something, God's going to keep it. He's going to stamp it in the books and keep his word in his time. Now, there's there's five men. And by the way, the Jewish community would have been able to go back to the historical records and go, yep, he does follow that. And yep, he does follow that. They would have been able to check this stuff out. God cares the details in keeping his word. Um, But we find out that many in this kingly line of Judah especially struggle to follow God. In fact, many of them just plain rebel. Uh, There's one guy who I'm going to pull out, and his name is Manasseh. Now, Manasseh, you can find his story in 2 Chronicles 33. And and I just started sifting through some of these names because I wanted to know a little bit about, oh, who is Boaz and who is Obed and who is Jesse? And I just started kind of sifting through these names through the scripture this week, and Manasseh's story popped out to me. In 2 Chronicles 33, um, we find out that he, uh, his dad, Hezekiah, was one of the greatest kings of Judah. Hezekiah loved the Lord, loved Yahweh. And sought to follow him. But Manasseh, who becomes king when he's 12 years old, all right? Any 12-year-old boys in here? Anyone close to 12? By the way, that's incredible. So you'd be like king over an entire nation. How do you feel about that? I'm scared. But no, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I think you guys would do a great job. Um, especially with good advisors. Um, uh, so Manasseh, he becomes king of Judah when he's 12 years old. He, he reigns for 55 years. Now, one of the things we need to remember about kings is that um, when you're king, someone else usually wants to be king. <laughs> and so there's, there's all sorts of, how are we going to get rid of him, especially if you're a bad king? Like, how are we going to get rid of him? How are we going to establish 
our rule? How are we going to overthrow him? 55 years is a long reign. But Manasseh is not just a long reigning king. He doesn't just come to be a king at a very young age. Here's what scripture says about Manasseh's reign. It's the longest reign in Judah. And it says that he did what was evil in the Lord's sight. It doesn't just stop there. It says a couple verses later, he does a great deal of evil. So not just evil in the Lord's sight, but a great deal of evil. And then it says, and he provoked him. You know, so it's like poking the stick at God. God, you want me to do that? I'm going to go the other way and I'm going to do this instead. Here's some of the things that, um, that Manasseh did. Young men who are 12, I don't recommend you do these if you ever become king. He put up places for worship of Baal. All right, this Canaanite pagan god. He built all these high places, extra places for people to worship. Not Yahweh, but Baal. He built up Asherah poles, which is another very pagan, wicked practice. He worshipped the heavenly host. He led in worship of the heavenly host, not Yahweh. He sacrificed his son in the Hinnom Valley. Yes, you heard me correctly. He sent his son through the fires in the Hinnom Valley. He engaged and encouraged witchcraft, divination, sorcery. He consulted mediums and spiritists. He caused Judah, Scripture says, and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to stray from God and do evil. Now, when you're king, you're given authority and responsibility. And God intends that authority and responsibility to be something that leads people towards Yahweh instead of away from Yahweh. But here we find Manasseh provoked God, and he went the absolute opposite way. Now, the question might be, can God use a guy like this? He's included in the genealogy of the Messiah. Could God use a guy like this? Now, it's interesting. If you go and read his story in 2 Kings 33 and around that area, you'll find out that God brings a foreign army, the army of Assyria. Now, Assyria was wicked, wicked, wicked. So he brings a wicked army against his people who are acting wickedly. He brings them and he takes he, he has Assyria take Manasseh off to Babylon, all right? One of the big centers, we're going to study Babylon as we look at Daniel next year. It's one of the, the major epicenters of this time in the, in the world. They take him off to Babylon in shame and in prison. And in the middle of all of this distress, Manasseh repents. You go, is there any chance that this guy, who is so far from God, from everything we can look and see, would ever turn to God and bend his knee. The text says that Manasseh repents. Scripture says it this way. It says, Manasseh came to know that Yahweh is God. Friends, when you come to know Yahweh as God, it means you recognize you are not. <laughs> it means that you recognize, I, I may feel in control, but I'm really not. I have control and responsibility over my actions, but there is one here who made the whole world and everything in it. One who calls me into a different walk, into a different life, into a different way. This is the message of the gospel. Jesus came to preach, repent. The kingdom of God is at hand. Turn from your own way. Because with me, you find rest. And with me, you find purpose. And with me, you find meaning. And oh, by the way, with me, and only me, can you find a way to the Father. Manasseh came to know that Yahweh is God. Have you come to know Yahweh is God? Not, not in the, I know and I have this knowledge in my brain, but I know so much that it actually goes beyond my knowledge that I'm going to actually put my stake in the ground and say, like Paul says, to me, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. What matters is Christ in every part of my life. You and I, we, we can't make ourselves right before God. We're made right because of God's grace and his mercy and his love extended to us. But friends, we have to receive that. Have you received that good gift of God's grace where you become a new creation in Christ? In the middle of this, this distress, Manasseh repents. Scripture says it. Manasseh came to know that Yahweh is God. Now, 
He'd done a lot of damage as king. But it reminds me, can God still redeem that which seems utterly broken? And the answer is, you bet he can. You bet he can. All right? That's one of the guys. We could talk about more of them, but I want to handle, um, handle talking about the women listed here in just a minute, in just a short, brief time. Here, I mentioned before, um, genealogies usually included men. Not always, but usually. But here we have five women listed in this genealogy. We have Tamar. Okay, you go back and you read Tamar's story from the book of Genesis. You'll find out that she has kids through her father-in-law because her husband died. And it gets really messy really quickly. And you go, can God use a person like that who, who deceitfully carries on the family name through her father-in-law Judah? You bet he can. You have Rahab. Rahab was a prostitute from Jericho. All right? When... When Israel's getting ready to go in, they send some spies, and Rahab goes ahead and she makes sure that they're not found out by the authorities in Jericho. Rahab puts everything on the line. They say, look, if you put this crimson cord out your window, when we come back, we will not harm you. Will you trust Yahweh? And she goes, yeah, I will trust Yahweh. They come back. She becomes, formerly of, of the, the peoples of that area, she becomes a part of of the children of Israel. She becomes actually one of the matriarchs of King David. You come to, to, to Ruth. Ruth is a Moabite. Now the Moabites have their own story that goes back to Lot, and who is Abraham's cousin, and, or nephew, in the book of Genesis. We won't go down, the whole that, down that rabbit hole too much. But the Moabites did not have a great relationship with the Israelites. The Moabites have a kind of a very dark and sordid beginning. Um, but Ruth comes on the scene, and she's, she has a whole book, like four chapters, devoted to her story and the story of Naomi. And when you read Ruth, the Moabitess, the Jew would have gone, a Moabitess? Because they don't have great history with Moabite women. Put it that way. Ruth makes this famous statement, and we see Ruth's character pop up just, just so amazingly in her story. She makes this famous statement to her mother-in-law, who is Jewish. Her, her, Ruth's husband had died, and her mother-in-law, Naomi, says, you go back to your people, and Ruth says to her, no, no, your people are going to be my people, and your God, my God. She decides to leave the paganness of her upbringing and says, I want to hang everything I have on Yahweh. Can God redeem? Yeah, he can. We come to Uriah's wife. Wife. Now, it's interesting, it doesn't say Bathsheba, which is actually her name. Uriah was one of David's, like, mighty men. He was one of the great warriors. And while he's out at battle, David has an adulterous relationship with Uriah's wife, Bathsheba. All right? That actually goes to, to do a whole bunch of damage to the nation, a whole bunch of damage to his family. God redeems it, but it's still messy because choices have consequences. And, and sometimes God gives us grace in those. And so, sometimes, frankly, we just learn by our consequences and learn how to make things right with God's help. It doesn't take away the ramifications of what was done. But Uriah's wife is Bathsheba, and she engaged in this. And you might think, God, how are you going to keep your promises to David after that? And this genealogy highlights Uriah's wife is through whom the chosen one is going to come. That's King Solomon. So he's, he's their son. He becomes king. And then the chosen one to whom they're eventually looking forward to, Jesus, comes through that line. You have all these names. You also have Mary in here. Her story is in Luke chapter 1 and 2. And her, her story is a story of a girl willing to take upon herself a personal hardship of becoming pregnant by the Holy Spirit before she's fully married because God found favor with her and wanted her to be the mother of the Messiah. She says, let it, let it be to me according to your word. You have all these stories, and they're all unique. You have some in here, a couple kings, that you're just like, whoa, that guy is totally wicked. A lot of them who, who are good, but they still screw up. Can God redeem that which seems irredeemable? I love the story of Manasseh, because you look at Manasseh, you go, yeah, he can. <laughs> you look at any other of these, and you say, yeah, he can. Here's the point. Sometimes it feels like there are dark days in the world in which we live. 
God keeps his promises. He keeps his promises in his time. And he uses people, you and I, with a past. Some of them not so good. But he can redeem the past and use it for his glory. And the ask is this. Will you turn and let Yahweh write your story? Do you believe that God can use you? I mean that. Like, do you really truly believe that God can use you? I look back on my life and I, I think of all the things that like, well, I have to do this in order for God to use me. Hang on a second. No, do I believe that God can use me where I am right now for his glory? The story of the scripture is, yes, he can. <laughs> yes, he can. We are all one turn away from walking after God. The, the word repent actually means to, to turn. Teshuvah, to, to, to turn or to return, which means if we're going like Manasseh was in a completely other way than God, whichever way it was over here, to turn to God is simply one step. God, I want to have a heart for you. God, thank you for redeeming my life. God, thank you for meeting me and my brokenness. God, here I am. Use me. Do you believe that God can use you? Do you believe that God can use you to pray for and to lovingly pursue the person in your life who's far from God? He can. Do you believe that God can use you to bring peace to a work environment that may be really tense right now? He can. Do you believe that God can use you in your family where there may be tension or disagreement? He can. Turn to him. You'll be amazed at what God can do through you. Most of our time we spend trying to do things outside of God's power. God says, I've given you everything you need for life and godliness. Will you walk after me? Yes. Friends, the, most single, the single most important truth for God to use us is to recognize that when we yield ourselves to God, using us as as a part of his plan and a part of his kingdom and, and meeting us where we are. That's just what God does. So number one question as we close is, do you believe God can use you? Number two question is this, for what are you waiting on God? I've been in various seasons of my life where I've been in this like holding cell of God. Are you going to do this now or are you going to do this later? God, am I just here? Am I just supposed to be like, going on this merry-go-round and just waiting until it stops? I love this genealogy in what Galatians says that we read earlier. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son because it reminds me, God is never early. God is never late. God is always right on time, as one of my pastor friends likes to say. God is never early. God is never late. God is always right on time which means that there may be things in our life where we're just waiting and we're just waiting and we're just waiting. And let me encourage you, keep waiting. Keep waiting. Keep waiting for God to reveal that truth or that something to you when you are, when he is ready for you to have it. Not until when you're ready. Wait until God is ready for you to receive it. God knows us better than we know ourselves. God is never early. God is never late. He's always right on time. But in the middle of this waiting, be faithful to what God has already told you. I think this is hard for many of us because sometimes my eyes are so focused on the next project or the next year or the next generation or whatever that I miss that God wants to do something in my life right this minute. And it involves me walking with him. One of my seminary professors put it something like this. He said, before you want to know God's will for your life, put to intention seeking to know God himself. When you seek to know God himself, his will becomes secondary for your life because he meets you in everything you're facing. And even if it's a question, you fall back on God, you are good. 
God, you've been faithful in this and in this and in this, and you've kept your promise here, here, and here. God, I can trust you. If there's something you're waiting on God for today, I encourage you, just give it back to him and say, God, this is yours. You know, you know how this is affecting my life, but God, I'm going to trust you with this. I'm not going to hold on to it. I'm not going to worry about it. I'm just going to take the next step of obedience here and now and know you better in the process. I love what one of my mentors used to say. He said, he said faithfulness in walking with God is never failure. In fact, faithfulness tends to be what God calls us to every day. Is there something you're waiting on God for? Is there something that you're struggling with because you're saying, God, you can't use me because of this? Would you close your eyes with me? Whether you're here, whether you're online, joining us for this, think about those two things. God, sometimes there's this thing that we think we have to do in order for you to use or redeem. Or God, maybe we think that you can't redeem our past. Father, you remind us in your word, you can redeem anyone's past and make them new in Christ and a new creation where the old person is gone and the new person has come. God, we pray that for our lives today. We don't want to be defined by the things of our past. We want to be defined by who we are in Jesus. We want to walk forward faithfully in that identity. God, some of us here are waiting on things. And I, for one, can be really impatient in waiting on things. Or I can ask questions of why. God, help me to trust you in the middle of this. Pray for my friends here. Who, who are struggling with that right now. They're, they're waiting to see something and, and they just may not see an answer. But God, we trust that you're always on time and you're good and perfect timing. God, that you know what we need even before we ask it. And so Father, we trust you today. We trust you with our lives. We trust you with our families. We trust you with our world. And God, we ask for your spirit to empower us and to equip us to walk faithfully as your disciples here on this earth. Thank you, Father, for meeting us here. Thank you for your goodness to us. We bless you in the name of Jesus, our Messiah. Amen. Thanks for listening. We hope that what you heard inspires you to take the next step in your faith. If you have questions about this message or would like more information about our church, we invite you to check us out at fbczealand.org or call us at 616-772-4377.